We turn back to Ecclesiastes one last time. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We started with sort of this closing section last week of chapters 11 and 12 and how they uh, sort of tie it together and address this question of how as believers in God, as those who look beyond the under the sun, as those who are resting in Christ, how do we live in this under the sun world? And we saw a couple of the answers last week in chapter 11, and we'll see a couple more here in chapter 12, which begins with the word remember. How many times as parents do you encourage your children to remember something, to, to keep it in mind, to not forget it? We understand the importance of remembering things because there are lessons we want to pass down and, and we desire that they be remembered. The teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is, in a sense, purposely turning to a younger audience as he started there at the end of chapter 11 when he talked to those who are young in chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. It's not an exclusive sort of, I'm only talking to young people now, but there's clearly a sense in which he is heavily burdened for those who are younger. He is looking at life and wanting to give them these lessons that they would remember these things now rather than, if this is indeed Solomon who has written this, going through all of these different exploits that have taken him all over the place and finally somehow coming back and, and, and coming to where he should be, the, the exhortation is now to the young, don't, don't walk that same path that I walked. Uh, the teacher is, is clearly well acquainted with a reality of life, and that is a sad reality, that we are a forgetful people. We can be taught something, we can be challenged in an area, we can learn it, we can get it, and then trials come along or some kind of new obstacle comes along and it seems like we just quickly forget it, at least in a practical way sometimes, the way we act as we walk through things. Uh, and so we have a tendency sometimes to take the very lessons that God has given us to give us joy and peace and sort of jettison those in those moments when we are being pushed around. At too many points in life, and especially when we're young, we're prone to forget that the years are racing by and life is short. And so he has continued to sort of remind us of that theme. When life is just unfolding at full speed and we are busy, busy, and it's just so easy to forget that throughout each moment of the day, we are accountable to the living God. We get engrossed with life. And perhaps it's that tendency to forget, especially perhaps amongst the young, that prompts him to start chapter 12 with the word remember. Verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. We know that Ecclesiastes has been this sort of penetrating look at what, what the writer has described as life under the sun. Under the sun, referring to this worldview that says, this is it, this is all I'm living for, it's all right here and now, I don't know what's beyond the sun, I'm not thinking about eternity, I'm not thinking about some God in heaven, I am just living for me and living for now. And that's sort of the catchphrase that he uses to describe that perspective. And it is people then who end up 
walking the path that he has described in this book, sort of grasping along the way, looking for hope and peace and satisfaction, trying to find it in stuff, in relationships, in work, in accomplishments, in food and wine and all sorts of things, pleasures, just trying to find something to cling to that lasts, that feels good long-term, that gives inner peace. And yet we find that time and time again what he said is these things don't work because they're just fleeting. The pleasure they give is fleeting. It's, it's just like smoke from a fire. It's visible, and you see it, and you grab it, and it's, it's gone. It just disappears. And that's what the writer has said over and over again. All of these things in this under-the-sun world, if you keep trying to hold them too tightly, it doesn't work because they're fleeting by their nature. God has designed it that way that they simply go away, and it becomes this futile search. If we put our hope In life under the sun, we are destined for a pursuit of these sorts of things that don't last and inevitably disappoint when we try to put too much on them, when we try to invest too much in them. So, as I said last week, chapters 11 and 12 sort of take on this question. How then do we live if we are in an under-the-sun world that is living for the moment and we are engaging in that world on a daily basis and, frankly, we are so prone to forget that we act like people who live under the sun. How is it that we should live? How should we respond? And essentially, I think in chapters 11 and 12, there are four answers. We saw in chapter 11, the first one was the urging to take wise risks, coupled with have great faith in God. Believe that God provides for you. Believe that he knows your needs, that he will supply for them, and therefore you can take wise risks in investment. You can be boldly generous with your stuff because the idea is that God knows my needs. And so if he has supplied this for me, I am free to hold them loosely and to share and to be generous and to minister to others who have less than I do, knowing full well that God will not forget me in that process. And so by faith, taking what seem to be wise risks and trusting that God will provide. The second thing that he talked about was this rejoicing Verse 8, back in 11, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Again, that same principle that each day is a gift from God. Each day is a, is a, a treasure to be used as a stewardship from God. Uh, that we receive it, that we use it with the idea that we are ultimately accountable to him. Now on to chapter 12, and the first one here is remember. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The Hebrew word for remember has that idea of recalling something, but it probably gets a little deeper into the notion of meditate on it, think on it, give it some some devotion in terms of your thought. It's not simply remember as in don't forget where you left the keys. It is remember with sort of a purposeful intent to it. Moses uses the word in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he's warning the Israelites about this tendency that we all have to forget God and think that we are self-sufficient and and, and just this sort of agnosticism that sort of leaves God out of it and thinks that we can do it. And he says this in Deuteronomy 8, 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your father's as it is this day. So it's not merely remembering in the sense of recalling something that you might forget, but it is remembering purposefully. It is intentionally, deliberately reminding myself 
that this is, there's more to this. I'm remembering and meditating on my creator as, if anything, as a guard against that sort of self-sufficiency that will creep in and that will tempt me to, to draw away from him. So it's a similar call here now in Ecclesiastes 12 to what we saw in Deuteronomy, except for the context is he adds, while you are young, at, at this season in life, remember your creator before the days come when you say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, remember your creator before those days settle in when the aches and the heartaches and, and all of the struggles that come with age begin to settle in and, and, and distract you and I all the more from focusing on God. Jeffrey Myers writes this. He says, it's best that we reflect upon these realities when we are young so that there will be fewer regrets and fewer missed opportunities. Wisdom helps us avoid later lamenting the times we were given but did not receive with thankfulness. It's a good description. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, both as a, as a guard to help us to, to avoid stepping into some of the landmines and to avoid some of the regrets down the road when we stop and look back and go, oh, I wish I had thought of that when I was younger. I wish I had meditated on the Lord that way when I was younger and not wasted time down this path. And then the second thing he's going to really elaborate on here in chapter 12 is do it before you start to get uh, sort of caught up or distracted with some of the physical limitations and challenges and, and things that come up as you grow older. Uh, the more that we kind of take the attitude of Someday I will do this, or I will set aside time for whatever it is, a daily quiet time, or I will focus on this spiritual discipline. The more we sort of postpone those things, the more I think we all find life only gets busier. Life tends to get harder and busier, and there's more distractions, and whether it's older parents than you're taking care of, or, or kids who are growing up that you take care of, or job responsibilities, it, it doesn't get easier in the sense of the circumstances surrounding. And that's what he's alluding to here. And he says, before those days come when you say, I have no pleasure in them. He's going to unpack this for us. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. He's not talking about something phenomenal in the solar system, but he's using light and darkness as he has throughout the book to draw this contrast. Light and darkness, life and death. And here the picture is that as you move through life and as you get older, there, there begins to come a season when that same sort of youthful optimism that the sun will come out tomorrow starts to get mm, diminished just a little bit. And, and the clouds start to settle in and there's not the same sort of clearing and the same sort of brightness. And, and so the, the picture here when he talks about everything getting dark ultimately is pointing to death. He's ultimately saying before you get to that season when death is fast approaching and, and, and things are growing dark and you feel like the clouds no longer will lift, meditate on him now as you're, as you're approaching what he will now describe as physical demise. Now, so verses 3 and 4 we're going to read. Take this. This is really kind of an allegory. It's a picture of a broken down house and it's tie this in with what we're seeing about aging, and he'll go on to say more about aging and going to, the, to death and mourning. So put all this in now, and this is really an allegory of the body going through aging. Uh, verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent 
and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. Let me stop there. On all of these, I, I, I'll throw out this caution. I don't, I don't want to tell you these and say, this is exactly what we're certain that this means. I, I, I think we have some ideas of what it means. I think the whole picture, though, is very clear. And that is he is talking about the decay of the human body as time goes on. So he says first, keepers of the house tremble would seem to point to arms and hands. The, the keeper of the house being the one out front who sets up guard, the one you come to first. And it's the same thing for the man who is the protector or defender. It's, it's the arms, it's the hands that put up the defense, that hold the weapon, that sort of provide the guard. And what he says here now is the keepers of the house begin to tremble. Hands begin to shake more with old age. The strong men are bent, perhaps points to the idea of legs. The same thing that upheld him through work and into battle and whatever the calling was where he stood firm on now begin to become bent with age. Keep in mind as we look at all of these, this is in ancient times. There wasn't the orthopedic surgeon. There wasn't the you know, hip replacement and knee replacement and all of the things that, that sort of at least postponed some of that for us. He's giving a picture that was very vivid to them of just the body as it went through all of these different illnesses and struggles. He goes on and, and says the uh, verse 3 um, the grinders. I had to stop and think about that for just a moment. The grinders cease because they are few our teeth is probably what he's pointing to there. A vital part of us, and as we grow older, we have less of them, and the grinders begin to cease. And then it's hearing and vision. The, the, the vision through the windows now becomes dim. What once was so clear, again, they, they couldn't go to the eye doctor and, and get a prescription. Uh, now it becomes harder to see. And then the hearing, what used to be the sound of the birds in the morning, that, that was such a beautiful sound, now you you don't even hear it because your hearing has begun to fade away. It's kind of a bleak picture, I know, but that, that's essentially what he's describing here, the, these harsh realities. In fact, verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Simple reality of growing old. There's a fear of falling. There's a fear of, of what can happen when you fall. I still remember it was a point years ago we were living in, in California. I remember being up on a stepladder doing gutters or something and slipping and falling. And it was the first time in life when I fell that instead of doing as we do when we're younger, you fall, you get up, you go, ah, you know, you hurt maybe for a moment and then you go on. When you get a little older and you fall and you, you lay there for a moment and you stop and you wonder, I think it works. You know, I didn't break anything and it's like an accomplishment. Wow, my, my neck might hurt or my back might hurt, but I can, I can get up from this one. And you just sort of pause to think about it because you realize what you just did. And that's what he's describing here. There's just that, there's new terrors. There's things that used to be so ordinary that now have an element of fear. To them because now it's you're scared that something will go wrong and your body just isn't ready for it. Activities that once seemed normal now have this element of terror. Talks about the almond tree in bloom. Here's what a blooming almond tree looks like. What stands out to you about that? 
It's turned white, right? Again, talking about old age, you know, the white hair that, that blooms as we grow older. And he goes on and talks about the grasshopper, the appetite, the agility, all of those things that we took for granted when we were young, that we had agility and we had strength and we had appetite, and now it just seems like all of that begins to diminish. And just to be sure we know where he's going, he makes it clear at the end of verse 5, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. That's why he's saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth because there is coming a time when the advancement toward the end will be even more rapid than you think. That phrase eternal home probably doesn't carry all of the hope and connotation that you and I take into it as New Testament believers when we think of going to our eternal home, the presence of Christ in heaven, and there's something glorious about that phrase. Probably the writer of Ecclesiastes is using it more factual as in you're, you're, you're going to die. There's going to come a point when this life will end and you will enter into an existence that is eternal at that point and the mourners will come after that and mourn your passing. Gets a little different picture now in verse 6. Again, remember your creator before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Final illustration here is comparing our bodies to earthly vessels, very much like the New Testament does when it talks about us as being clay pots, except here his point is to say the body is one day going to be done. It's going to be finished in terms of its, its usefulness. At, at one point, it is this golden lamp hanging in the house, illuminating the house, hanging from this beautiful silver chain. Or it's like a beautiful piece of pottery, a jar that's used out at a well, and it's attached to a pulley, and it's used to gather water. And the picture that he gives here is one day the silver cord, the silver chain breaks, or the pulley breaks, and that beautiful golden lamp and that beautiful jar crash to the ground, and the water that's in the jar and the oil that's in the golden lamp spill out just giving us a, a vivid picture of life ebbing away from the body. Feeling all optimistic and encouraged at this point? Gets better. <laughs> Verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Actually, let me, I, I forgot, I left, uh, left off a quote here that went back to verse 6. Let me just read this, and it'll be up on the screen here. Derek Kidner writes this. I think it's a great description of the, the golden lamp and the jar. The pictures of verse 6 capture the beauty and fragility of the human frame, a masterpiece as delicately wrought as any work of art, yet as breakable as a piece of earthenware and as useless in the end as a broken wheel. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and the reality is we're also fragile and we're also moving to a point as he's described there in verse 6. Verse 7, then he talks about the dust returning to dust and the spirit returning to God is essentially reversing creation order. If we go back to the book of Genesis and God's creation of man, Genesis 2, 7 says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. This is now the the flip side of that, in that the body now, the, the life leaves the body, the spirit now ascends to the presence of God, and the body now returns back to the dust. He is very clear here that we live eternally. Death is not the end of existence. This is not annihilation. This is an end of the, the bodily existence, 
but now the spirit ascends to stand before God. However primitive the, the teacher's perspective is on eternal life, there is a clear expectation that the real you, your spirit, will stand in the presence of your creator, that you will stand before him accountable at that point. It is really the, the closing act of life under the sun. And so verse 8 seems entirely fitting at this point. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Remember your creator in the days of your youth because here is the path. And it will get hard and you'll be troubled. And in the end, he concludes it with vanity of vanities. Remember again, the importance of, of thinking on that Hebrew word for vanity is that he's not saying meaningless. This is all just meaningless. And, and you know, why bother? Just forget it. The point of that Hebrew word hebel is to say fleeting, futile. And, and, and what he's trying to, to reaffirm here again one more time is it is all just like this. From your body to the rest of life, it is all just going away. And that's, that's the course we're on by God's design so that we don't get stuck worshiping this. That we've got a culture that worships the human body and, and tries every way it can to, to sort of preserve every element of youthfulness because that, that's such an idol for our culture. And, and God's design is, it goes away to set within our hearts a longing for something else. If, if all our chips are put in on life under the sun, we are doomed to futility. We are doomed to not find the satisfaction and the peace that will last. We will cling to stuff that will go away the same course that our bodies are taking. Science has affirmed it. We are, we are deteriorating. I, I, I said this in the first service, and I think I said second law of thermodynamics. Somebody said, no, third, that, that entropy, right? That we are, we are gradually, I, I checked to see who the science people are who are saying, yep, that's right, because I am not one of those. I have to Wikipedia this stuff. It's, it's just the laws of, of science around us that, that things are going away. Material items wear out. Uh, they fade away, and, and we cannot stop that slide or postpone the inevitability of death. Our bodies and the world around us under the sun are wearing out and fleeting. And so he's warning us. That's why he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. There is only one that we can cling to that is not any weaker now than he was a millennia ago. There is one, only one, who is fully unchanged, who has been omnipotent, uh, omniscient, who has been the same greatness for all of eternity. And the teacher is saying to us, hold on to him. Remember your creator. Everything else you cling to won't last. Don't vest all your hope in it. Hope in your creator. God is the one that you are accountable to. God is the one who uh, has given to you this stewardship of life and breath and material blessings. And so remember him. Meditate on him. Let your thoughts go to him and to his greatness. The God who will not wear out, who never sleeps nor slumbers. Hold on fast to him, even as you hold things on earth loosely. 
verse 9. Now, he's going to transition here. Verses 9 through 12 are sort of a, a digression of sorts, but to make a point. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. This next section through verse 12 is a very purposeful digression. And there's different takes on, is this the preacher now suddenly speaking in third person? As if to say, so this is what I did. This is why I did what I did. Or is it some kind of editor who sort of puts it all together under God's divine inspiration? Not entirely clear. What he wants us to see is something really crucial about the source and authority of the book of Ecclesiastes. And along the way, he's going to give us some, some great instruction about teaching wisdom. First, he says, the preacher employed wisdom in the way that he prepared this message. Now, as challenging as Ecclesiastes has been, there's times you, you sort of are just shaking your head at exactly what he's trying to communicate. What he says here is, listen, the preacher deliberated over this. He chose words and proverbs carefully, and he sought to arrange them carefully because his desire was to, to, to bring some delight in the reading so that you would be sort of enticed to read on. It's a great description, and it's, it, it's good for us to think about in terms of an application, and that is when you and I have opportunities to communicate God's wisdom and God's truth, we ought to be thoughtful and careful. That's really the picture here. What he's saying is the preacher wanted to communicate in such a way that it would make it something to listen to, something you would desire to listen to, not just throwing it out there, but making it something that would challenge. I think that's good for us to think about in terms of our care for communicating God's word, whether it's parents to children or teachers to students or you to a, a peer that you're discipling in some way. It, it, it's not meant to sort of freeze us with fear that, oh, I've got to say exactly the right thing. It, it's just offering some wisdom here that the communication of God's word should be something we are careful about, something that we desire to care about God's truth enough to know what his truth is saying and communicate it appropriately so that people hear God's truth, so that they hear it in a way maybe that, that helps them to understand it better. Then he says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. A goad is a, a pointed stick or a stick that had sharpened parts to it that were used by the herder of cattle or oxen to move them down the road. Animals that you couldn't just say, come on, come on. If you used the goad, you could sort of give them just a little shot, and that was enough so that when they were tempted to stray off the path, that would move them back onto the path. The picture here is really wonderful because what it's saying is there are times when the, the wisdom of God's word acts like a goad in our lives. It, it pokes at us. It, it catches us when we are walking that path and we are tempted to, to walk over this way. And God's word has that wonderful, wise way of saying, no, 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 that's not the right path. And just sort of goad us back toward truth, back toward obedience to God on that path of life. And so this, the, the teacher's sort of offering this balance here of striving 
to communicate in a persuasive, delightful way, it says here, striving to say that God's word is wonderful and his wisdom is true and you should embrace it, but also dealing with the reality that God's word, as it rings up against our lives, there's times it will bring pain. There's times it will poke at sinful areas, that it will jab at us and push us. That's the nature of truth. It, it won't always feel warm and fuzzy. God's truth is fixed. The goad was fixed. And so the idea is that it doesn't bend to our wishes and our desires. Truth is fixed, and we are the ones who are called to bend to it. The goad wasn't flexible like a little rubber thing that you poked at the cattle. It flexed the cattle, so the cattle responded. And that's the idea of what God's Word should do to us. We've got this culture around us that loves to say of the Bible, oh, well, in the 21st century what that means is, and then completely twist it and what it means. And what the teacher here is saying is God's Word is fixed. And in fact, if it doesn't goad you from time to time and bring some sort of penetrating pain from time to time, then you're probably treating it too lightly. It's probably an issue in your own heart and not with the truth. If it's not causing you to flex, instead of expecting that somehow the truth will accommodate your desires. He also mentions firmly fixed nails, that the words of the wise are like firmly fixed nails, these collected sayings. We know what nails do. They establish things in place. We nail stuff in place. And, and the picture he's just giving is the, the, these words are being communicated for the purpose of establishing people. Whether it's someone who is in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are the vehicle that God is using to share that or a young believer or a mature believer who just needs to be held up by God's truth, who needs to be established. The words of the wise are like firmly fixed nails. They help us to stand in place on truth, to be in the place where God calls us to be because they call us to what his, his word and his will say. He closes verse 11 with that statement, they are given by one shepherd. This is a statement about the source of this wisdom. There are some commentators who sort of play with this and go, well, maybe that's a reference to Solomon. They've already used the term preacher here in verses 9 and 10, and so it makes no sense that he would sort of rename himself um, in verse 11. Some say, oh, this must be some figure like Moses or something. This is God. <laughs> I mean, all we got to do is go back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my... Shepherd, right. This isn't an unusual idea. So when he says these collected sayings, these words of the wise are given by one shepherd, it is a remarkable statement about the inspiration of Scripture that it is God's word, that it comes from him. And, and, and it's, it's designed, again, to encourage the reader of Ecclesiastes to know this is God speaking. We said this at the very beginning. As, as, time, as much at times as there's people who tend to struggle with this book and say, oh, this is just the view of this pessimistic old guy, you cannot lose sight of the fact that it is God who is seeking to speak to us through every word of Ecclesiastes. And that's why he says here, these sayings are from the one shepherd. It, it comes from God. There's no reason to deny that the preacher believes God is the shepherd. Then he goes on and he, uh, he gives a warning. My son, beware of anything beyond these, verse 12, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Sounds like Proverbs for a moment when the father says to the son, listen to me. 
And in this case, what he's saying to the son is, these sayings, this wisdom of the wise that is like a goad, that is like a firmly established nail that comes from God, hold to this. Don't start straying from it. Don't start taking, when, when somebody comes and says, well, yeah, that may be God's word, but here's this. Here's something better to read. That's what he's warning his son, and he's saying to him, don't, don't fall for that. Beware of anything beyond the wisdom and truth of God's word. This is, this is reminiscent of what we see often in the New Testament when Paul is saying to the churches, you've got these false teachers who are coming in, and the first thing they're doing is saying, yeah, yeah, that's what Paul taught you, but I've got extra knowledge. I've got special knowledge. I've got something else to teach you. Those kind of warnings stand firm. The end of the book of Revelation, don't add to the words of this book of prophecy. And, and that's what he's essentially saying here about the authority of this book of Ecclesiastes, that, that we never lose sight of the uniqueness of the wisdom and truth of the word of God, especially amidst the endless supply of writings and content and books and everything that's out there. He says to his, to his son, there's a wealth of stuff out there that, that seeks your attention and seeks your interest. Don't let any of it have priority over the word of God. Don't it, it, take what's from the one shepherd and vest authority in that and trust that. Don't get caught up in everything that seems to show itself as, as the new and the latest and the best to read because content is being churned out every day. If we were to write verse 12 in 21st century language, it would be of making many YouTube videos and blog posts and tweets. There'd be no end. You know, there's just this load, plethora of stuff that just keeps coming at us. And the writer is saying, Know the authority of the word of God. Know the authority of that which is true and from the one shepherd and, and rely on that fully. Last two verses. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We've seen kind of this chapter 11, 12 response to how we live as people living under the sun, wise risk, rejoicing in every day that we have, remembering our creator, and finally the last point is respond to God's call. The temptation of our culture with the book of Ecclesiastes is to incorporate it in the English lit course at college and to say, well, this is just another fascinating look at how some people view life. You know, you've got this world full of philosophical debate over the meaning of life and where it all goes and where it all ends. Here's one guy's perspective. Here's some thoughts done in nice, interesting, poetic style of what life is all about. And, and, and that's, I think, in part why the writer has been so careful to put that claim of divine inspiration just before this and to say this is the word of the shepherd this is the word of God. And, and if we believe that, and if we believe that God is the creator of the universe, if we believe the things that he's unfolded here, that, that life then is short, then, then we need to respond to what he says when this God calls us. When he says, so here is the end of the matter. Here is what we are to do. This isn't just saying, so here's one option for how to look at life saying, no, this comes from God, and here's the end of the matter. Your life is short, therefore, fear God and obey his commands. 
in light of the fleeting futility of life under the sun. There are a myriad of things we could do, things that we could prioritize as being important. But when all has been heard and we see life through God's eyes, what we see then is, I have created all this and created you to answer back to me with gratitude and praise. I have made all this and put you in it to enjoy it, to relish it, to praise me for it, and ultimately so that it would turn you back to me. It's all fleeting, so you stop idolizing it and you respond to me. Fear God and keep his commands. The, the, the wrinkle then is verse 14 adds this accountability of judgment. He will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. Um, there's a temptation there to see that as, as, as sort of terrifying, that God would conclude with this sort of broad statement of judgment. It's not intended to be. If, if we believe in a creator God and we, we're following after him and trusting in him, and in our case, knowing the gospel, trusting in Jesus Christ, that's not meant to be terrifying. That's meant to be incentivizing. Because what it's saying is that in this chaotic, nonstop sort of under-the-sun world, the, the temptation is constantly there to, to just dwell on the fact that I don't have control over things, this is frustrating, this is unjust, I feel like a hamster who's just running on the treadmill, it just keeps going in cycles, and then I've got this old guy in Ecclesiastes saying, hey, let me tell you something, you're going to live a short life, all of your accomplishments one day are going to be gone and lost, you're going to die and be forgotten, and all your stuff will go to somebody who will waste it. Well, thank you. And so the temptation at that point is to go, so then what's the point? Why? Why does it go this way? And the answer is because everything matters. And that's why he says this at the end, is to incentivize to us to realize that it's not like it, it's all meaningless. It all matters because we are living out our lives in the presence of God. And so our words and our thoughts, our actions, our inactions, all of that happens in the presence of the God who made us and sustains us. So there are no throwaway moments that are utterly meaningless. Even when we feel like no one is watching and no one cares, God is watching and God cares. And so Ecclesiastes is meant to teach us to live in the valley of the shadow of death, even when we don't think we are in that valley yet. Even when we're sure that we're healthy as can be and we've got a long time yet to go, Ecclesiastes is saying, you're, you're a lot closer than you think. Live that way. Matthew 12, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Paul, with a similar warning in Romans 2, verse 6, to those who are rejecting Christ, they will stand before God's judgment. He will render to each one according to his works. The point is not that we earn God's favor through our works. The point is to say that our words and our works are a demonstration or a reflection of what is in our hearts. And if it is a heart that has embraced the, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and is surrendered to him, the works that flow from that will be according. Out of the, the, the well, out of the mouth, the heart, it's out of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'll get it right. It, it, what's from within is what is expressed 
in life and word and deed. And, and, and so the, the concern here for believers as we look at this, this statement of judgment is, listen, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, there's, there's, there's accountability here for how we live our lives as worshiping stewards of God. But as far as punishment goes, Jesus took that. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment. So this is not a terrifying judgment in any way because Jesus Christ already stood in our place and took our sins on him and, and has paid that price. And so he's calling us to, to a sense of gratitude, to, to a response to our creator, to live with the belief that in this fleeting world that, that's so focused on under the sun stuff, we cling to God. We cling to the one sure thing. Now listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're not sure what happens when you die, if you're kind of looking at Ecclesiastes and saying, eh, okay, that's, that's one idea. Listen, I, I plead with you. This is the word of the shepherd. This is God, your creator, who has said, you stand apart from me because of sin, because a perfect creator has made us and, and we stand at odds with him and, and dismiss his word and dismiss his wisdom and think we know better and we are enemies of his. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and stand in our place and to die on the cross to take the punishment we deserve for our rebellion, our rejection. And he calls us to now trust fully in that Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. This final end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. If, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, that's where it starts for you. This is not calling you to say, okay, so I just need to find what God's commandments are. I know there's 10 of them at least, and, and obey those and just do those. Because you can't. You can't do it perfectly. You, you will break God's law again and again. I break God's law again and again. The only hope is by resting in a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, and trusting in him. And then coming back to verse 13 and saying, fear God and keep his commandments, that is just, that is what I get to do as a believer. That is out of the gratitude of my heart for the grace of God who not only was kind enough to give me life and breath and food and drink and water, Beyond that now is kind enough to rescue my soul from my own sin and give to me a hope that extends for eternity beyond the sun in his presence. Then, then why wouldn't I want to hold him in awe and do what he says? Lord, what, what's your will? I just want to follow it and seek his ways. That is man's chief duty in the short time that we have under the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness and truth and power of a book from oh, some 3,000 years ago that demonstrates to us over and over again that it is not an ordinary piece of literature or a special poem, but it is the living and active word of God, able to cut through to our motives and our intents and to awaken us to your truth, able to act as a goad to steer us back when we are straying. 
Thank you for the wonder of your word. I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that today would be the day when you would open their eyes, that the goad of your word would bring to them life, that they would see you and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. And Father, for we who are trusting in Christ, help us to love your word, to strive to in great gratitude to you, hold you in awe and follow your word. Thank you for this rich book of Ecclesiastes. Help us to, to, to take the, the lessons from it often, to be reminded frequently that life is short. We only have a, a brief time here to live this out for your glory and your honor, to take great risks for you and for your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.